If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheets are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or add a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheets bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheets for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212. This is the World According to Zig podcast for June 30th, 2019. My name is John Ziegler. I'm the host of the show where you can still get the truth about the news of the day. In a world turned upside down, our website is www.freespeechbroadcasting.com. That's where you can find all of our past episodes of the World According to Zig podcast as well as my uh, columns and major interviews. So much to get to, as is usually the case. Uh, we are, by the way, from a scheduling standpoint, we're still not back 100% on uh, a normal schedule. Uh, we will not be doing another episode this coming weekend, So, but we will in two weeks. So we're going to hopefully get back to a weekly basis sometime shortly, but uh, during the summer things happen both in life and in production, and that's what we've been dealing with. But uh, looking forward to talking to you today about a number of issues. As is usually the case, I urge you to check out my other podcast, which is the Individual One Podcast, you can find that by going to freespeechbroadcasting.com or my Twitter feed, which is Zygmunt Freud, or the Twitter feed for that podcast, which is at Individual, the number one pod. Uh, today, um, you know, normally the Individual One Pod is where all of the Donald Trump-related commentary is. Today, I will be doing a little bit of Donald Trump-related commentary on the World According to Zig podcast. I've been struggling with how to deal with the issue of, okay, does Trump belong in the World According to Zig podcast or not? And with the Democratic nominating process heating up, I feel like there are uh, some things Trump-related that belong in the World According to Zig podcast. So there will be some Trump stuff, some Democratic nominating process stuff, and specifically uh, an update on the allegations of rape against Trump by uh, writer E. Jean Carroll. I wrote uh, two columns about that. Uh, this week, uh, which you can find at freespeechbroadcasting.com, and I want to discuss that uh, during uh, this particular hour. We'll start, though, as we have for the last several months with the the latest with regard to the Leaving Neverland episode uh, from HBO, this uh, pseudo-documentary that we have done an extensive amount of work in debunking. And this week was the 10th anniversary of Michael Jackson, who was the subject of that bogus documentary, Leaving Neverland, and the accusations of child sex abuse against him by James Safechuck and Wade Robson, both of whom I am now convinced are frauds. Uh, This past week was the 10th anniversary of Michael Jackson's passing. Interestingly, the epicenter of that occurred just a couple miles from where we're doing this podcast, 
uh, because at the Forest Lawn Cemetery in Glendale, California, here in Southern California, uh, the there was an amazing display. I mean, amazing display by Michael Jackson fans who uh, commemorated his passing and bought thousands and thousands of red and white uh, roses to be placed uh, there at the Forest Lawn Cemetery. Really beautiful and amazing response by Michael Jackson fans. And Michael Jackson fans uh, have been remarkable in so many ways. I know this firsthand from from uh, the reactions we've gotten from this podcast and from Twitter. And really, they're the reason why Michael Jackson has not, and his legacy has not been 100% destroyed by these bogus allegations. If it was not for the size and the passion of those fans... He would have been canceled or erased at this point, uh, by and large. Uh, But that has not occurred. And we saw that uh, in uh, a lot of the 10th anniversary commemorations, both uh, online and, as I mentioned, at Forest Lawn and other places around the world. Now, that being said, it was not treated by the media in anywhere near the same way that it would have without leaving Neverland. That's just basic reality, and that's something that I warned uh, people about uh, before that ever happened. And, uh, you know, there was almost no commemorations in the mainstream news media that did not at least mention, if not focus on, leaving Neverland. Uh, Now, ironically enough, I did one interview surrounding the 10th anniversary of Michael Jackson's uh, passing, uh, and that uh, was with uh, what is essentially the CNN of Bosnia. (laughs) It's called M1, or N1, I think it is. Uh, And um, this was a fascinating interview. It was about a half hour long. It was via Skype, and it got released uh, in bits and pieces, but now the whole thing has been released on YouTube, and you can find it at uh, my Twitter feed, Sigmund Freud, or I believe it's also been posted at freespeechbroadcasting.com. And it's just amazing to me how media from all over the world, and I I would say two of the best interviews I've done have been one in Bosnia and one uh, from a small country in Africa. I can't even remember which country it was. Uh, where where they seem to understand what really happened here way better than anyone in the the American news media. The American news media is just so pathetic. It is such a joke. It is so sad. Everyone is so afraid of their own shadow. No one cares about the truth, especially when it comes to any sort of allegation of child sex abuse because their heads explode and everybody's too politically correct. Everyone is so afraid of me too. And so the truth just doesn't matter. And so the, the American news media... Uh, has been revealed, at least to people who are paying close attention, as a complete fraud. Uh, They don't care about the truth. They care about what's good for them and what's safe for them. And whatever narrative works for them on that day is all they're going to care about. So I I urge you to check out that interview that I did with N1 in Bosnia. And uh, because we can make a lot, we can do a lot of things you're not going to hear, certainly in the American news media. And I I ended that uh, interview, or I didn't end it, but it was ended with me being asked about, okay, where do we go from here? What about Michael Jackson's legacy in the long run? Do you think that leaving Neverland is going to destroy it? And I'm a pessimist by nature, and all I want is justice in this. I just want the truth to win out, but the truth almost never wins out anymore, especially in highly controversial topics. And I gave a fairly pessimistic answer. Uh, It is my assessment that... um, 
that while he was not destroyed, and it's largely because of the Michael Jackson fans I just referenced. In fact, uh, there was just a report released that uh, streaming of Michael Jackson's music actually increased 41% during this time period, the most recent time period after leaving Neverland. But I view that as kind of like gun sales going up whenever uh, Barack Obama indicated he might try to ban guns. (laughs) When people are fearful that they're not going to be able to get a a product anymore, they tend to buy more of that product. And that's kind of what happened with, with Michael Jackson and the streaming. But I do think that there has been, while not a destruction of Michael Jackson's legacy, a a permanent handicap, at least semi-permanent handicap, uh, that's going to harm him for many, many years to come and probably uh, may end up having more impact in the future as his fans die off and fewer new fans are created. See, that's the, the I'm looking at this in the very big picture. And when, and I, I use the analogy of an injury, like if this is a race, right? I mean, Michael Jackson is dead, so he can't create any more new music. And so, you know, what's already in place with his estate and with his music library or whatever, that has to maintain itself. And, you know, with acts of that level, that can be done. I mean, the Beatles, Elvis Presley, you know, that, that type of, of performer, they can live into perpetuity. But when you get an injury, like, you know, like a knee injury or an ankle injury or whatever, and over time you're, you're slowing down in that race, and over time there's attrition, over time there can be more impact on a performer's legacy. Let me take this out of the theoretical into the practical. And this is maybe a, not a great example, but you look what happened with Kathy Griffin, right? Kathy Griffin was a fairly well-known comedian uh, who was embraced by the liberal establishment. And then a couple of years ago, she did this stupid thing where she put up uh, President Trump's, uh, uh, not his real head, obviously, but a, a fake version of Donald Trump's head decapitated and all bloodied. And she took a photograph with that. Like, uh, you know, she was celebrating his fictitious death. And she intended it as a joke, but it went over poorly. And uh, everyone abandoned her. Uh, you know, she got X'd off of uh, CNN's New Year's Eve, which she used to do with Anderson Cooper. And so now her ability to access the mainstream has, at least for now, been totally eradicated. Now, in the short run, my understanding was she was still able to do shows all over the world with big crowds. It's kind of like Michael Jackson with the streaming. But over the long run, she gets forgotten about because she's no longer embraced by the mainstream. She's, For instance, she's not even invited to the cool parties anymore, which is where she got a lot of her content from. And, uh, you know, she's out of sight, out of mind. So eventually there's attrition, there's atrophy, and there's no way to rebuild it. It's almost like she's become dead. And, and so that's the analogy with Michael Jackson. As long as that's, that toxicity and that stench is still unfairly in my view, over his legacy, it makes it very, very difficult for the, the legacy to maintain itself. If you think about it as a business, which it is a business, the estate clearly is a business. Now, now that being said, there's a lot of advantages Michael Jackson has that Kathy Griffin, even though she's alive, does not have. 
I mean, his estate is worth a ridiculous amount of money. The estate, if it's smart, has the ability to spend some money to fix this. I've urged them to do that on the last episode of, of this particular podcast, though they've not done so in person. So they have some options that other people don't have, and I'm still hopeful that maybe this will be fixed from a substantive standpoint. But going against the narrative is almost impossible. Once the narrative has been accepted by the mainstream news media, especially on a politically tr- correct topic like this, it's really very difficult without something massively dramatic. As I've said, you need Oprah to recant, you need Safechuck to recant, Robson to recant, or at least one of the moms to recant. And that's very unlikely to happen, regardless of what the subject matter is, or Dan Reed to somehow recant, which is never going to happen, the director of the film. So... Um, while you know I'm not overly pessimistic, I'm not uh, optimistic either, and I'm definitely one that uh, urges people not to get overconfident because even though you know the facts and the people around you and Michael Jackson fans clearly have not abandoned him, in order for this to maintain itself in the long run, this needs to be fixed, and it needs to be fixed in fairly short order. There are some ways to do that. I'm just not confident that any of them are actually going to be implemented. I mean, this is such a difficult issue to fight against. Let me give you an example that might not seem related, but it occurred to me as I was driving into the studio today. um, I usually listen to XM satellite radio, but my satellite, for some reason in my car, my my stereo is broken. Uh, But it's only intermittently broken. So sometimes I'm able to get satellite radio, and sometimes I'm forced to listen to terrestrial radio. And, wow, I have no idea how terrestrial radio, which I used to be in as a talk radio host, I have no idea how terrestrial radio can possibly survive because there's so many damn commercials, and they, uh, the content is such crap. But this is how desperate they are for commercials. It, on Los Angeles radio, there is a constant commercial being aired, which cannot be cheap considering the the level of inventory I've heard. A constant commercial by a lawyer asking people to come forward if they were abused in what they're referring, referring to as the UCLA gynecology scandal. Now, think about this, folks. First of all, I don't even know what the UCLA gynecology scandal is. I know there was a USC gynecology scandal that involved a particular doctor. By the way, there were radio commercials for people who might have been abused in that situation, too. The USC situation, to me, felt like it was a copycat of the uh, the Dr. Larry Nasser circumstance, the gymnastics coach who got convicted out of Michigan State and U.S. gymnastics. And that, you know, basically what you have here, I mean, think about how in the world a gynecologist can possibly survive uh, in a post-MeToo world. I have no idea. When your job is literally, is literally to do things that are not allowed in the post-MeToo world, right? If you're a male gynecologist, I'm not, I'm not defending those that would abuse the power of being a gynecologist, but how in the world do you defend yourself against any sort of allegation once that spark occurs once it gets in the media, once the lawyers start to smell blood, and especially when you're working for an outfit that has a lot of money, like a USC or a UCLA. So some lawyer actually thinks, and probably rightfully so, that it's 
monetarily worth it to spend tons of money advertising on local radio for a generic, hey, have you ever been abused in the UCLA gynecology scandal? Again, not even a specific doctor. Well, post me too. Anyone who's ever felt uncomfortable going to the gynecologist the UCLA is going to go, hmm, ah, I smell money. Uh, this, this sounds like me. They call up. Who's your doctor? Now all of a sudden, you get once you get multiple, you know, allegations against a particular person. Look out, because the doc, the, the lawyer smells money. The media has already bought into that. This is a rational narrative. Uh, you know, we, we saw it, at, and, and it's not a coincidence that you have it at USC, and then all of a sudden it, it blows up at UCLA. And again, I don't, I have no idea what the alleged facts of the UCLA situation is. They don't even give a name. I, I doubt very seriously that every UCLA gynecologist has been abusing victims. This is a cash grab. But this is how powerful it is that I guarantee the, the the radio station didn't even think twice about accepting the money from this lawyer to to mine for alleged victims of, of somebody they, we don't even know who the accused person is. This is not healthy. It's a it is effectively a modern Salem witch hunt, regardless of what the underlying facts are. It's incredibly dangerous. And so this is the atmosphere in which Michael Jackson supporters are trying to fight against allegations of sexual abuse that are nonsensical, not not corroborated, not supported by facts or logic, and are about a dead man that can't defend himself. Similarly, the Ohio State situation occurred. He was the, the, the wrestling doctor, teen years, and all of a sudden they started to come out of the woodwork because they got to the Larry Nassar situation. Of course, Ohio State puts out a report basically caving and substantiating all this bullcrap. When it appears to me, from my investigation, that all that was really happening was some some uh, a gay doctor who was inappropriate in uh, how much he enjoyed treating very uh, well-fit male wrestlers. Not supporting it, not defending it, just telling you what it was. It's not sex abuse, especially back in the 1980s when you know, these kinds of things were joked about. So the, the atmosphere, the environment is, is very, very difficult and very dangerous. And so I think it's important to keep that in, in mind when in determining where this whole thing is going to go. Speaking of the, the topic of uh, sex abuse... I mentioned this last week, and I, I, I've updated my thoughts and my theory on this. There was an allegation that has been referred to as rape by the mainstream news media uh, by E. Jean Carroll against President Trump. And I referenced this on last week's podcast, and I wrote about it uh, twice for Mediaite. You can check those columns out at freespeechbroadcasting.com. And my thinking on this has evolved because the fact pattern has evolved. I believe that E. Jean Carroll is 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 a bit crazy. I, I don't trust her from the standpoint of recollection of events uh, or her interpretation of events. However, her level of detail about the allegation that uh, she says happened 23 years ago in a dressing room in New York City where she met Donald Trump and Trump convinced her to try on some lingerie as a gift that he was planning to give some other woman, and it turned into a uh, a rape situation, or so- certainly sounds like a rape situation. Her level of detail is very strong, 
And while she's given some crazy interviews, especially on CNN, where she said some nutty things, you can't get around the detail, especially when it's corroborated by two reputable people who now are on the record with the New York Times saying that she told them this happened back when it occurred. Now, that doesn't prove it occurred and doesn't prove what occurred. But to me, it proves something happened, which Donald Trump has said did not occur. He has claimed he never even knew this woman, never met her, even though there's a photograph of them meeting in a, in a different uh, situation, I believe many years before uh, the, uh, the alleged rape. So, you know, right off the bat, the corroboration, and I was at first very skeptical because, okay, where are these people? Where are the corroborating witnesses? The, the New York Magazine article claimed that there were two women journalists who supported her story, saying that she told them what occurred contemporaneously. Okay, what are their names? What do they say? What are their details? That did not happen originally, which I found to be very strange and suspect. But then, a few days after the initial media coverage and the New York Times ridiculously apologizing because they didn't go all Salem witch trial on Donald Trump, that was a a joke. I wrote a column about that. That was totally wrong for the New York Times to do that. They actually handled the initial allegation perfectly well with actual restraint, which is what you should do in these kind of situations, especially when they're 23-year-old allegations with no substantive proof. So... Uh, But, you know, those corroborating witnesses came forward in a New York Times podcast. I listened to that interview twice. They corroborate that something happened. Now, what they corroborate happened, I'm not sure. One is convinced it was rape and told uh, E. Jean Carroll to go to the police, and she said she would not do that. Interestingly, E. Jean Carroll was laughing on the phone when this person, when they first talked to this person. And E. Jean Carroll, to, I think to her credibility, acknowledges that she was charmed by Donald Trump. And she has said that this is not rape and it was not a crime, that she actually kind of blames herself for this. Now, a lot of victims' advocates have understandably said, well, wait a minute, this is the way a victim responds in this kind of situation. They blame themselves, not their, their uh, abuser. I get that to a certain degree. But there's also another aspect to this, which E. Jean Carroll's story fits right into and she effectively acknowledges this that she revisited this and other episodes from her life after harvey weinstein and after me too and that is very very dangerous so i don't know for sure what happened no one does other than ej and carol and donald trump what happened between these two uh 23 years ago or so i still have concerns about the story there's still no specific date which is always a big problem for me uh, the fact that she did not go to the police, the fact that she was laughing about it at first with her friends, the fact that she doesn't think she was or doesn't call it a rape, although she does so for kind of weird reasons. She said it's not a crime. These are all red flags to me as to what actually occurred. But frankly, Donald Trump's response to this is in the category of Dasto protest too much. I'm all in favor of a vigorous defense, but when you start going after New York Magazine as a failing magazine, and I never met this person, I have no idea who she is, and there's a photograph of the two of you meeting at a party, uh, and you say she's not your type. Not your type? What? You cannot be serious! (laughs) So what is the type that you would rape, Mr. President? I mean, not your type? Not your type sounds to me 
like a situation where Trump is talking about, hey, something did happen, but I wasn't really that into her. I mean, that, that's what's cons- at least it's consistent with that theory. And frankly, that's where I am on this. When I look at all the facts, there's nothing that contradicts the following scenario. Trump, who we already know, has said on tape in the Access Hollywood tape that, uh, you know, when you're a star, they let you do anything, right? They, they let, even let you grab your pussy. I mean, that, that's what he said. That's a almost quote from, from Trump on tape. So this is how he views the world. When you're a star, you can get away with stuff. You get to do whatever you want. And so what happens is Trump, a you know pseudo-rich, thinks of himself as super-rich. He's a celebrity. He's well-known. Uh, he's a narcissist. And uh, this woman, uh, E. Jean Carroll, admits to being charmed by him. He thinks that any woman who is charmed by him and then puts on lingerie to, to model for him, that that's in his distorted, diseased brain, that's an invitation to make a move if he's in the mood. That's where he's thinking. And he makes a move incredibly, in a, an incredibly clumsy and highly inappropriate fashion uh, in, a, in a way that uh, she perceives as an attack, understandably so. And uh, he apparently, according to her story, uh, even gets his penis immediately involved and thrusts it inside of her which she referred to as being painful, and, and she fights back, and apparently this thing ends immediately. Uh, now, here, here's again. I'm just trying to figure out what actually transpired. I am convinced Trump is lying that nothing occurred, based upon the corroborating witnesses. I would like there to be an exact date, but, you know, it is what it is. My gun to my head. Something happened, and it is certainly possible that Trump misread badly a situation because in through the prism of his experience, he thinks that's an invitation to do what he wants. It's totally wrong, uh, but especially in the 1990s, it, it was certainly in his mind would not have been a sexual attack or a rape. And that's why she didn't refer to it as a crime or a rape, even to this day. And so it's totally wrong. It could theoretically have been thought of as a crime or a rape. It was borderline. She decides not to pursue it. And then all these years later, post-Harvey Weinstein, post-Me Too, she reevaluates that and goes, wait a minute, this is what other people are saying is rape. Maybe I should say something about this, and I'm going to write a book about all the other times that I've been sexually abused by men. Now, I'm a little concerned, as Trump has said, that she's been apparently sexually abused about 20 times and never gone to the police, including by some pretty prominent people. It's almost like she's the Forrest Gump of sexual abuse, which doesn't mean it didn't happen, but it makes me a little concerned. I'm particularly concerned in the red flag area where she, in this interview with the New York Times, indicates that at least a couple of those 20 allegations in her new book, and it's important to point out she's doing this as part of a new book, which is a commercial endeavor, at least a couple of these allegations are what she describes, what sounds like repressed memory situations from her childhood. Well, repressed memories is bullshit. It's not even allowed in most courtrooms now because it's a concept that's been debunked. I've done a lot of investigation of this and had done numerous interviews with Dr. Elizabeth Loftus, who's one of the world's premier experts on the issue of memory. And she is 
almost single-handedly debunked the concept of repressed memory and repressed memory therapy. And I would love to know whether or not E. Jean Carroll has undergone any sort of therapy to come up with these kind of memories. So again, I'm not a thousand percent convinced that E. Jean Carroll's memory here is is a hundred percent reliable. But those two corroborating witnesses are credible people, and in what was really impressive to me is. Their stories didn't 100% jive. Now, that sounds contradictory, but I'm a big believer in, that sometimes a little bit of discrepancy is, is good for credibility because the reality is the only way you get two stories 23 years old at 100% jive when it, uh, you know, it's second or third hand is if you're contriving it, if this is all part of a, a plan or some sort of conspiracy, and there's no indication of that. So it's really difficult to understand the motivation. Granted, there's a political motivation. I'm sure these two people are not conservatives. These two rather prominent writers. But, and one's a, one was a media person. The other actually wrote the preppy handbook. Uh, so these are well-known people who have something to lose here. Yeah, they have a theoretical political motivation, but the re- reality is this is not going to have much political impact. In fact, a- after all the craziness of the G20 summit, I-, I doubt anyone even talks about that this week, which is the you know part of Trump's genius, <laughs> whether it's on purpose or not, is that the things around him are so crazy that nothing ever gets any traction because there's not enough time because the media moves on. I've referred to this as the whack-a-mole problem. The media keeps playing whack-a-mole when they should be digging for oil. I don't know whether or not this is the, you know, this is certainly not the smoking gun or the silver bullet or whatever in trying to to destroy Donald Trump. But if you're worried about the truth and what really did happen, I think he's not telling the truth. I think he's lying. I think he knows something occurred between the two of them, and that's why he's going over the top in his attacks on her, when most presidents would probably just ignore this issue, especially when they know from past experience that this is not a topic that his uh, fan base really cares that much about because they're so invested in him as a president of the United States. I love the poorly educated. So that's the E. Jean Carroll situation. Again, I urge you to check out the two columns that I wrote about that. And my guess is that, that story, amazingly, has probably run its course. Uh, but who knows? We'll see. Uh, as far as the Trump cult is concerned, I do want to share uh, an interesting situation that occurred with me personally this week. I live in Southern California near the uh, Reagan Library, the Ronald Reagan Library. I've visited many times. And I, I usually go when there's an interesting uh, speaker. And in the Trump era, <laughs> what, uh, what might not have been an interesting speaker all of a sudden becomes an interesting speaker. And specifically, I'm referring to uh, conservative commentator George Will, who you know, has been a, a conservative legend for many decades. Uh, you know, used to be on uh, uh, ABC this week with uh, David Brinkley. Uh, and back when the Sunday shows actually mattered, uh, you know, what he said, uh, I think, really had impact. And he has been one of the few conservative commentators who has not been taken in by Donald Trump, mainly because he doesn't need to. I don't think he's uh, financially motivated. He's near the end of his life. Uh, I I don't think he cares that much about the adulation. It doesn't, you know, he's not worried about how many retweets he gets or how many uh, Fox News Channel appearances he gets. Uh, He's secure enough in himself where he can just say, this is, this is absurd. 
And it's obvious that he, he has disdain for Donald Trump. And and I went to his uh, speech at the Reagan Library almost more curious about how the crowd would react to him than how he would react to the crowd. But I was fascinated by both. And part of why I was fascinated by both was, one, the crowd was much larger than I expected. I, I'm, I'm wondering whether or not this crowd even knew that George Will was very much anti-Trump. And that they were just going because, you know, George Will has always been a, a hard and true conservative and, and he's one of our team and he's a celebrity, so I'm going to go see him. I, I don't know that, but the crowd seemed almost identical to a, a, a previous crowd I had gone to see when Ken Starr spoke. And that crowd was very, very pro-Trump. And they loved it when Ken Starr was pro-Trump. And they were very hesitant when he said anything that was remotely negative about Donald Trump. So the crowd seemed in size and in quality, almost all white and older, and seemingly very conservative, although I didn't see any MAGA hats in the crowd. But this is a you know upscale crowd at the Reagan Library going there for a for a lecture about a brand new book on conservatism and, and called The Conservative Sensibility. And so I was, I was interested that the crowd was large and it seemed to be sympathetic to George Will, although Trump did not come up during the lecture. Now, that's amazing. I mean, you're, you do a book. Right, think about this. You're, you're doing a book about basically the history of the presidency and the con- history of conservatism. And we got a Republican president who's the most controversial president of the modern times, if not ever. And you're at the Reagan Library, right? And you would think that within an hour uh, of a lecture that Donald Trump's name might come up. Well, clearly, for strategic reasons by George Will, it did not come up. Not one time did George Will say the word Trump, which is amazing. Correct. And uh, obviously that was done on purpose. It was obviously his way of protesting Trump and probably, probably, by the way, a strategic move that's pretty smart. Because when you're trying to sell a book to conservatives, <laughs> it's not good business to trash Trump. And if you don't use Trump's name, it's much harder for you to get accused of trashing Trump. So I'm sitting there and I'm going, this is amazing. No one's even going to mention Donald Trump. This, I got to ask George Will a question. Now, I have this, I don't have many amazing abilities, but (laughs) one ability I apparently have is that my track record when I go to these events and being able to ask a question is pretty darn good. (laughs) I'm almost at 100%. There might be a time in which I have gone and attempted to ask a question when I was not able to for whatever reason, but most of the time I'm able to ask a question, and I always do so anonymously. Now, most people in my position would make it all about them, right? They would say, John Ziegler here, a mediaite columnist, uh, and uh, you know, I want to make this about me, and I'll ask a question. I purposely take myself totally out of it, one, because I'm not a big deal, and two, because I want this to be focused on the answer. And so I uh, use something that George Will had said uh, a few weeks ago, which I have been saying for several years, which is the Republican Party and the conservative movement in the Trump era has become a cult. I love the poorly educated. And to me, this is not debatable. It has every aspect of a cult. And George Will was right in saying that. And so I uh, wanted to ask George Will about this comment about the Republican Party and the conservatism becoming a cult under Trump and relate it 
to Ronald Reagan because obviously we're at the Reagan Library. And I was fascinated by both the nature of his response as well as the audience reaction to him. And I recorded it. Now, the recording is not great. It's on YouTube. The video is really not great because this is one of those situations where I don't know for sure if I'm really allowed to record. <laughs> I'm probably not. They said, please, no recording devices. And so... Um, I don't like ambiguity, but I also am not going to not record, one, because it's useless if I don't record, and two, unless somebody makes it very clear I'm not allowed to do something, I'm probably going to go ahead and do it if there's a value in doing it. But I'm not going to do it out in front because I don't want to create a scene, I don't want to get kicked out, whatever. Uh, And so uh, here's me recording my question to George Will earlier this week at the Reagan Library. Um, Mr. Will, you have said that the Republican Party under Donald Trump has become a cult. Uh, I unfortunately agree with that. I'm curious what you think Ronald Reagan would view or how he would view today's Republican Party under Donald Trump. And would he think of it as a cult? And how do you think he would uh, interpret what has happened? I I think he would say what he said about the Democratic Party. I didn't leave it it, it at me. I think Ronald Reagan would approve of some of the stuff that's being done. Any Republican would have wanted to cut corporate taxes. Barack Obama wanted to cut corporate taxes because ours were anomalous in the world. Any Republican president would have had a deregulatory agenda. Ronald Reagan did. Any Republican president would have selected judges of the sort approved by the Federalist Society, of which I am a card-carrying member. What distinguishes, and I really don't want to get partisan here, but what distinguishes the current president from Ronald Reagan is his manners. And manners matter. My my wife, the ferocious Presbyterian, hitherto mentioned, was a, before she was Ronald Reagan's last director of White House Communications, she was a speechwriter for him. And he would not allow people to to attack Democrats. He just didn't do that. Um, Ronald Reagan was polite. He was a gentleman. Uh, He was dignified. And uh, try, I'll give you an example. Try to imagine Ronald Reagan overseas quoting a dictator, the head of North Korea, approvingly quoting a dictator calling a former vice president of the United States a low IQ idiot. Now that's, just try to imagine that, unimaginable. Because Ronald Reagan knew, and he sold his speechwriters, you quoted the end of his Lincoln's first inaugural address. The paragraph above that begins, we are not enemies, we must not be enemies. And that was Ronald Reagan's approach to politics. All right, and again, you can see that on YouTube if you're interested in seeing the crappy video that went along with the audio. (laughs) But uh, I find that episode fascinating. I find it fascinating, one, that Will will not use Trump's name, and then he has strategically decided that the best way for me to handle this is, and this is brilliant, I'm going to give my audience and those who might buy my book an out And I think that's why the audience liked what George Will said. Think about it. 
he's saying, well, you know, on policy, Trump really is a conservative and he's doing a lot of things Reagan would approve of. It's really just a matter of manners. Now, conservatives love that, at least people who are not full-on cult members. And, you know, if you're at the Reagan Library, you're older, you're a little bit more upscale for this event, you're going to see, go see George Will, you, you have a temperament, I think, that obviously, as you heard from the reaction, that this is something that's going to make you feel good. Because you want an excuse for being able to support Trump. That's what people want. And that's frankly what talk radio has become. I view talk radio, conservative talk radio, allegedly conservative talk radio, as basically therapy sessions now. It's one, you know, for the cult, it's, it's basically a jerk-off session. Uh, but for, the, for those that aren't members of the cult, it's a therapy session. They want to be made to feel better about their support for Donald Trump. That's what they want. And this is a brilliant way for Will to give his audience what they want. Yeah, we don't like Trump because of his bad manners. Uh, But on policy, he's actually doing a lot of good things. To me, this is a cop-out. Because it's way deeper than the issue of manners. But I get why Will is doing this. Will is doing this because this is a narrative that his audience will accept and will actually like. Yeah, we don't like the manners, but my gosh, my gosh, the left is so crazy. They've forced him into doing this. And as long as he's making liberals cry and giving us conservative judges and the economy's good, we're okay with it. Even though there's all sorts of problems that are going to be created in the both the near and the, the far future because of what conservatives are accepting with regard to Trump's behind policy. I mean, look at the deficit, for heaven's sakes. Uh, Ronald Reagan would, would not be approving of that. Uh, he would not be approving of tariffs. And George Will, to his credit, did say that at other portions of the, uh, of the lecture. But the reality is, even on policy, Donald Trump is doing a lot of things that, that Ronald Reagan would strongly disagree with. But more importantly than that, he would completely disagree, as Will alluded to, with, for instance, everything that he just did at the G20 summit, sucking up to all the worst characters in the world. Vladimir Putin, uh, MBS of Saudi Arabia, Kim Jong-un of North Korea, uh, prostituting himself to create this fake historical event where he goes into North Korea as the first president to do so in the demilitarized zone, the DMZ. I mean, this is, these are all things that would make a Ronald Reagan a turnover in his grave, and rightfully so. Uh, but I do find it fascinating that the crowd is very willing to accept that it's, in fact, they're eager to accept the idea that Trump's real problem is just a temperament problem. And the media, I think, plays into this to Trump's benefit. You know, when uh, George Stephanopoulos did his 30 Hours special on Donald Trump, he asked Trump, and they even, you know, used some quotes from from Trump fans saying, boy, I just, I wish he wouldn't tweet so much. You know, I, I wish, I wish he, his language wasn't so coarse. Well, that plays right into Trump's hands. When you buy into the narrative that that's the problem with Trump and that's really the biggest and, and primary problem with Trump, Trump wins in so many ways. Cause it's, first of all, it's not true, but it also, it gives conservatives who are uneasy about all this 
it gives them an excuse. It gives them an out. It gives them a narrative that they can embrace without feeling badly about themselves. And that's really what this is all about. And that's what I have found that 90% of media is now about, which is sad and pathetic and depressing. It's really about uh, making your audience feel better about themselves and what it is that they already wanted to believe in the first place. That's what the media is now. There's no more broadcasting. There's no more uh, telling the truth because the truth has an inherent value. It's all narrow casting. It's all pleasing people by telling them what they want to hear, making them feel better about what they already believe or want to believe about a particular event. That's what conservative talk radio has become. That's what the Internet uh, basically lives on. That's what Twitter is all about. That's why retweets and likes and on Facebook shares that popularity has replaced, replaced truth as the coin of the realm. It's all about popularity and it's not about truth. And that's the biggest problem facing our media today. It's really not that much about liberal and conservative bias anymore, although those are currently obviously still major issues. The biggest bias problem is the popularity bias and the focusing on a very narrow demographic and to tell them what they want to hear so that they will retweet you or they will share you or they will watch you and you will get ratings. That's what it's all about. Popularity and truth are inherently in contradiction. And we see that all the time and it's only getting worse. And that's, you know... I'll be very frank. I get depressed uh, even doing these podcasts. I don't know how much longer I can do them, mainly because I know it's it's really just an exercise in telling people what they don't want to hear with no commercial viability because that's not the world we live in. It's a square peg round hole situation. And, you know, I, I honestly don't know how much longer I'll continue doing these. I'm, my hope is to do it through the 2020 election if I can somehow make it that far. Uh, but if Trump is reelected, which is becoming increasingly possible, if not probable, because Democrats are so nutty and are so going to blow their nominating process. And I talk about this in the Individual One podcast. And I urge you to check that out this week because I go into great detail into why. If Trump is reelected, then we've left the gravitational pull of the rational earth forever. There's no going back. Uh, we may already have reached that point, but it'll be completely hopeless and really just a waste of my time to be fighting against that. But for now, we'll continue on. Uh, there will not be an episode of the World According to Zig podcast next weekend, but there will be the following weekends after that into July. Uh, so make sure that you please uh, share this uh, via social media, Twitter, Facebook, uh, word of mouth, what have you. And also uh, do yourself a favor. And if you're one of those people who sleeps and when you sleep, you use sheets, please pay attention to this important message. My name is John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Ugh, like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah. They're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh. No wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like, mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should... Oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free.
Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.